So with all of that uh, that's been going on, it's been suggested to me uh, by more than a few that perhaps we take a break from Revelation for a while. <laughs> you know, let's just let things simmer down just a little bit apocalypse-wise. Um, so I've actually arranged a guest speaker for today. Um, see, if, see if I can get this to work right. Uh, he really needs no introduction. Um, let me find the right thing here. No, I got it. But let's hear what our guest speaker has to say. I declare God's incredible blessings over your life. You will see an explosion of God's goodness, a sudden widespread increase. You will experience the surpassing greatness of God's favor. It will elevate you to a level higher than you ever dreamed. Explosive blessings are coming your way. So, this is the Joel Osteen Sermon Cube, and you can buy one of these. It's got daily affirmations, daily inspirations, sermons on here. Um, my, my loving, caring son-in-law, Tom, got this for me for Christmas. <clears throat> now, while that, that daily affirmation, it's on the shelf along with my commentaries. I can just keep it right there. While that may sound swell, perhaps even encouraging, if we're all, you know, spiffied up and sitting in a giant sports auditorium on a Sunday morning, um, I would suggest it in the days following a cow assault, um, or in the hours spent waiting for an, an open, opening for an important surgery, or, or to be honest, even in some of our daily lives, that just rings a bit hollow sometimes. You know, we might know cognitively that we are blessed, but sometimes it sure don't feel like it. In fact, some days I think we could do with a little less blessing and a little less God's favor. Could you favor somebody else just for a little bit? So I think one of the, one of the dangers, um, maybe not the danger, but certainly one of the dangers in this therapeutic pseudo-gospel is it paints a not inaccurate picture of God, necessarily. He does bless, and he does show favor towards his elect, but it fails to mention all of the obstacles and all of the adversity that we have to face in order to maintain a relationship with God. It misses out most of life. In the book of Revelation, which, as we are seeing, I think paints a fairly realistic portrayal of the challenges of life that we have on this earth, both physical and spiritual. The, the book of Revelation starts off with letters of encouragement to the church. And the letters don't say, friends, you are blessed. You are above average. Your children are all good looking. You have the Lord's favor. You're about to feel an explosion of the Lord's blessing. What the letters do say is, you're going to face false teachers. You're going to deal with poverty. You're going to face persecution. You're going to have to deal with temptations of all kinds. You're going to be worn out. You're going to be run down. People will attack you, but persevere. The Spirit is within you, providing what you need. Endure. The power of the Lord will equip you. Conquer. Jesus defeated death. Your belief and your commitment to him ensure that you too will defeat death. Your eternity can be secure. But it's going to be a battle getting there. 
So I think that the Joel Osteens of the world present what is essentially a watered-down, cheap gospel. It's an easy believism that does nothing to prepare the listeners for the real world. So that when adversity strikes, their very faith is rocked. But God loves me. He blesses me. I'm his favorite. Where's my explosion? Our job, as we see it, is to preach through the actual Bible, not just pick a verse or two at a time. To deal with the good and the bad and the hard and the ugly. And to help us be prepared for the world as it is, while calling us to be prepared to work toward the world that will be. I don't know, I just felt like that was important for us to cover today. So, now let's get back down to it. Let's get back to this uh, Revelation chapter 9, and we're getting to, you know, on the weirdness scale, these next couple of verses, are, they're right up there on the, the Revelation weirdness scale. Last one's to the first four seal judgments. But they're coming from a different direction. They're, they're, they're taking a little different look, a, di- a different angle or perspective on it. And, and it, it wasn't that long ago, so hopefully you remember how unsettling the seal judgments were. We just need a little levity this morning. So now imagine we get to the trumpet judgments, and there's a trumpet blast, and then this shows up. It's a horrifying, terrifying experience. So, sadly, Christian has my sense of humor. (laughs) He found this. So while the seal judgments were quite broad in scope, the trumpet judgments, at least the first four, are much more detailed. Um, It's almost as though the trumpet judgments are describing the earthly physical effects of the spiritual spiritual reality of the four horsemen from the seals. And that may explain the the difference in perspective. The seals tended to be more spiritual, more they were playing out in heaven, right? That was was all coming from the throne room, while the trumpets tell us how it's impacting the earth. It's affecting the physical world. And then after the first four trumpets were described, there was a verse. There was this single verse that caused a slight pause or, or a redirection from the first four trumpet judgments. 8.13 says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we talked about how these three three woes are directed at, and the text makes it clear, the woes are to those who dwell on the earth. That's another way that Revelation says the unbelievers. So it seems as though this verse is setting up the fact that the next three trumpet judgments, that they're going to they're have more of a direct effect on the unbelievers, as opposed to the universal impact of the first four trumpet judgments. So let's see if that actually carries through, and that is the case. Starting in 9, verse, verse 1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So right away, we are called to remember that this is a vision. I mean, this is dripping with symbolism. 
the fifth trumpet is blown and a star falls from heaven to the earth, which ought to make us think back to the third trumpet, which also had a star falling to earth. Um, and that was described as blazing like a torch. But the description of the trumpet five star is altogether different from the star that fell in trumpet three. That third trumpet falling star affected the fresh water supply. This falling star is referred to as he. He was given the key to the bottomless pit. So I'm just going to make my, my initial statement here from the beginning. I'm just going to say from the beginning, I think this is likely a reference to Satan. Apart from the clues provided in the text, which we'll get to in a few minutes, there's also an interesting verse in Luke 10:18 where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Seems to kind of match the symbolism here. And we'll look at that verse in more detail later also. And then in chapter 12 of Revelation, looking ahead just a few, a few chapters, John describes a war in heaven which results in the angel Michael fighting the dragon who was defeated. And it says the great dragon was thrown down. And the dragon is then described as the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. I think that's just another retelling of what we're seeing here. So chapter 12 just gives us a more detailed version of what's being described here in chapter 9. So this fallen star, referred to as a he, he is given the key to the bottomless pit. Now make a note here, it says he is given the key. He does not have it. He does not own it. He does not possess it. He's not in charge of it. God is still in command and control. Satan does, ha- does not have this power or authority on his own. But Satan opens the pit, and there arose smoke like smoke from a great furnace. So much smoke that the sun and air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And remember, we also talked about darkness being a form of judgment. So this is already a fairly ominous picture. You know, our mental image may be something like, you know, the, the great horned uh, and pitchfork Satan holding open a portal to hell, billowing out black smoke. And from that black smoke comes a, I don't know, a battalion of angels. I mean, locusts, rather. And these are not just regular crop-devouring locusts, but these locusts have the power of scorpions. So these horrifying, shrouded-in-smoke, stinging locusts are coming out of this pit. And this has to be a horrible, horrifying sight for John to see. And to think, we were all spun up a couple months ago about murder hornets. This is worse. So these scorpion locusts, however we describe these things, they're, they're programmed, they're, they're banned from attacking crops, which is their normal function. In fact, they're told specifically not to harm the grass or the plants or the trees. And instead, they go after people. Their whole purpose is to bring suffering and pain to people, but not all people. They're programmed and commanded that they can only afflict those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, without this background that's provided here, it might seem to the casual observer, the the human participant, those of us who dwell on the earth, that Satan is really the one in control. He's causing all of this to happen. He opens the portal, which starts this whole series of events, but it's made clear to the readers, it's made clear to the hearers of this book, it is really God who is controlling events. I mean, think about this logically. Do you think that Satan, whose entire being exists to undo what God has done, do we think that Satan would open the portal and then say, all right, boys, let's go do some damage, but let's leave alone the people of God? No, that's where he would go first. 
He can't. He can't attack the people of God. The protection, this seal of God on their forehead, that goes back to the sealing that we discussed with the 144,000. That chapter specifically mentions the seal of God on their foreheads, and we see the same thing here. So although God allows Satan to cause upheaval and chaos and physical pain, although we are not spared from trial and temptation, we are spared as believers, we are spared from the effect of the scorpion locust. And all while we're still present on earth. We're not told here anywhere that we've been supernaturally snatched up to heaven to avoid the judgment. They're just told not to afflict us with whatever this is going to be. So we are supernaturally sealed to protect us from the effect of the scorpion locusts. So while the locusts themselves may be symbolic of something more, we're not sure yet, I think it's pretty clear that the pain and misery they cause is not symbolic. Now, if scorpionized locusts aren't bad enough, we're also told that you know locusts typically stick around as long as there's something to eat. A matter of days, they can wipe out crops, areas, and then fly off. But here, the locusts are allowed, and notice again it says allowed, they are allowed to torment the afflicted for five months. Now, in the grand scheme of things, five months is not that long. But when you're in the middle of it, it feels like forever. Like it's never going to end. And that's without really significant, constant pain involved in the process. Five months of, say, kidney stone pain, I think people would be taking their life long before they got to the end of five months. Um, Or even just the five months of, of waiting to get to your baby's sleep through the night. It can feel like a long time. In the grand scheme of things, it's not that long. But this five months, with this constant attack, it's so long and it's so painful, it says that people will seek death. And they won't find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. I don't know what that means. They're not going to be allowed to die. They're not, I'm not sure how all that plays out, but that's, that's what the text says. Now, this all sounds pretty rough, but this is not yet the full picture. The next section gives us even a little more detail. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, this is where some of the Revelation decoders start to get all creative and whatnot. They like playing with these descriptions. Um, I mean, obviously, a plain reading of this particular text clearly indicates that these locusts are really symbolic of Black Hawk helicopters. (laughs) Or drones. This could be an army of drones that's being discussed here. And each of those drones is outfitted with little tiny lasers, so as they roam the skies, they search out little fannies to shoot as they're roaming around terrorizing people. I mean, this is the clear and plain meaning of this text. Or... 
I found this interesting too. Those who are committed to Revelation following a linear timeline, they declare, as though this is obvious to everyone, that these locusts are actually symbolic of the army of Muhammad, bringing torment across the deserts. I mean, that argument fits their dispensational timeline. It has to follow this timeline, and so this really fits the pattern to think of these as the Muslim invaders. But in order to buy into that explanation, it seems like you have to ignore a fairly significant point here, and that is that the text says that Christians were saved from the torment. Was that true for Muslim invaders? It was not. In fact, tales of the Muslim conquest suggest that they gave the conquered people a chance to convert or die especially the Christians. So neither Black Hawks nor drones nor Muslims really seems satisfactory in describing what this is here. And again, if if we stay focused on making symbolism relevant for our age, I think we miss the point completely. What seems more likely, given the theme, the context of the whole book and this passage in particular, is that the picture being painted here means that the locusts are really representations of something like demons or demonic spirits. Remember, where do they come from? The bottomless pit, right? That's where they're coming out of. Whatever or wherever that is, that's kind of our depiction of where hell is located. And the imagery given is really pretty frightening. The scorpion locusts were like horses prepared for battle. But they also had crowns on their, gold crowns on their heads. They had human faces, women's hair, lion's teeth, breastplates of iron, and the noise from, their, from the beating of their wings sounded like an enormous army. Oh, yeah, and they have scorpion stingers in their tail. Now, if we assume there is a logical basis for the structure of this book, and I believe there is, I think God is a God of logic and order, then I think it's a huge leap to take this description and conclude from that that it's Black Hawks or drones or or Muslim. It makes much more sense thematically, logically, to suggest that this, this awful, awful physical description is of an awful spiritual demon set loose to torture people. But only those who are not protected, who are not sealed by God. And that's an important point. We cannot overlook this important spiritual component of this. All of this army-like talk is actually accentuated by verse 11, where it says they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is Apollyon. So just to help us understand the scene a little better, to give us some sense of this military approach to this, we're told who the commander of the army is, who the king is. In Hebrew, his name is Abaddon. That name appears seven times in the Bible, three times in the book of Job. Here's one example. Joel 26.6, Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. Now, Job was responding to one of his advisors here, one of his friends, and I won't get into the long pretext for this, but the point of this verse just shows there, there's a connection. Sheol was, it was the name of a place uh, referred to as the place of the dead, a hellish-type place, and Abaddon means destroyer. So we're seeing this link here between death and destroyer. It seems fairly obvious. And you'll remember the book of Job starts off with Satan coming to God and saying, hey, how about letting me, allowing me to pick on your boy Job over there? 
He could not have done it without God's approval. And then, of course, all manner of hardship and tragedy befalls Job. Well, then there's a, a, a psalm that mentions Abaddon. There are two Proverbs that mention it also. And both of the verses in Proverbs link Sheol and Abaddon. The biblical evidence seems to suggest that just as a king controls his army, Satan is controlling this army from hell made up of demons and spirits. And to confirm it, I think we're given then a second name, which is Apollyon, a Greek version of the same word, which means destroyer. And the word Apollyon is used only in this verse in Revelation. But if you look up Apollyon in Webster's, you'll see synonyms include Lucifer, Satan, Beelzebub, and my personal favorite, Old Gooseberry. I don't know what that means, but I like it. Maybe it's meant to be like more disrespect. All right, listen, Old Gooseberry. I don't know. I'm going to start using it, though. While Satan... So while Satan certainly can exert influence over the hearts and minds of kings and generals and lead, you know, evil rulers into battle, I think the scene portrayed here is that he is the active commander. He is the king controlling the army directly. So the army is likely comprised of demons released from the pit and controlled by this head evil guy. But again, the army can inflict damage only as far and wide and as long as God allows. And all this sounds horrible. And it is. But remember, we're told, this is just the first woe. It's not over yet. There are two more to come. Verse 13 says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horse, horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. So if the locusts weren't scary enough for you, the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and John hears a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar. Now this is the same altar that we discussed a few weeks back, which is essentially the altar of incense, something like that. It's, it's now situated before the throne of God. This is the altar where the, the martyrs are gathered around praying, and we're told that God is listening to these prayers. He's waiting for the right time to respond to their prayers. And so although it's not specifically spelled out here, a reasonable conclusion would be that the voice heard release the four angels. It's, it's the voice of the Lord. He's controlling the events. He is setting all this in motion. He's still in control. So the voice says to release the four angels who had been preparing for this moment. And what are they preparing for? To kill a third of mankind. So again, I think we can reasonably conclude that these are probably, I mean, they're described as fallen angels. These are, these are demons of some kind. It also says they've been bound. They've been kept at bay. God did not allow them to do whatever it is they're, they're prepared to do. He's kept them locked up. 
They can do nothing on their own power or initiative, and only when they are let loose by God can they bring about what amounts to some kind of warfare. Now again, this is a vision. It's highly symbolic. I, I believe that this is a reference to all war, but I think it's probably a reference to physical and spiritual war. So it's not describing a particular battle. It's not the great and final battle, which will come later. But this almost hellish description can really be used to describe all conflict, which coincidentally was the fourth seal. Right? That was the writer that was given authority over the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence. So we're still seeing the symmetry between the seals and the trumpets. But this description says the army's been released to kill about one-third of mankind, which means it must be a pretty big army, and John numbers them at 200 million, which likely is not literal. The big idea is that it's so many, John can't count. He had to be told. He heard the number that was amassed. And then he provides more detail. The horses, not the riders, but the horses had breastplates the color of fire and sulfur and sapphire. They were horses, but they had heads like lions. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And the fire and smoke and sulfur are then referred to as plagues. The plagues of fire, sulfur, and smoke. And it's these plagues that result in the death of one-third of the population. We talked about the connection between the Old Testament plagues and these seals and trumpet judgments. Here they use the word plague. So it's what came out of the horses' mouths. That's what led to death. Their power is in their mouth and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads, so they, they can even wound with their tails. Now, it's pretty clear at this point that the, the description provided of these horses is unlike any horse we have ever seen, just as the description of the locust is unlike any description of a locust we've ever seen. So again, some might suggest that these symbols are referring to something like the machinery of warfare. You know, these, these are really referring to tanks and cannons, thing that belch, things that belch fire and smoke, bring death. Now that may be part of what is in view here. But again, if, if that's where we settle, I think that would be missing the point. Because we've been told in this text that these last few judgments are, are aimed specifically at unbelievers. So the real battlefield here is faith. The real battlefield is the heart, the soul. It's belief versus unbelief. It's, it's the believers and the, and the God they believe in versus unbelievers and the God they reject. So while the physical aspects of this spiritual battle may include tanks and cannons and who, know, who knows what else, that's not the point of the judgment here because this is at its, at its core a spiritual battle. So it might make more sense, I think, to suggest that the locusts, the horses, are really symbolic depictions of demonic forces or demonic influence, leading the unbelieving world farther and farther away from God. I think that's, that's what it means here when it talks about what comes out of the horses' mouths. One-third of the world is going to fall fall prey to the plague of false teaching. Teachers who claim to represent truth but are actually leading men to hell. And w- which likely means that evil will continue to rise. Actual physical battle may result as well. So the sixth trumpet 
seems to indicate warfare, but I don't think it's limited to just our normal understanding of war because it's based on the work of demons. So this warfare, this, this what comes out of the mouths of the horses, I think is going to be based on the work of demons. It's going to include an assault on things like truth. Aren't we seeing that? Haven't we been seeing that for centuries? It's going to include an assault on morals and ethics, leading people farther away from God. It's going to include an assault on things that have been presumed to be unassailable, things we just took for granted, like gender. We're being led away from truth. These are all areas that have come under spiritual attack, and they've all resulted in physical death in some cases. But it's a spiritual battle. And we've created a culture that has led increasingly to narcissism and nihilism. Life is either all about me, or life has no meaning at all, so what's the point? I mean, from our, from our fake social media portrayals to our incessant selfie-taking to our insistence on living our best life now, we tend to live for us, which keeps us away from living for Christ. And consequently, I think what we're being what we're seeing in our culture are very mixed messages about the value and meaning of life itself. On one hand, we're told that we are important. We matter. We're special. We may be the most important thing ever. We are the center of the universe. I'm special. I'm not sure about the rest of some of you, but I'm, I'm pretty special. And on the other hand, we are now engaging in a very public battle over whether or not life matters if it's in the womb or whether or not we can kill people if they get too old and are too sick. So life may not have as much meaning for some. I mean, don't we have a right to end life as we see fit? I would suggest for an awful lot of people, this all becomes very confusing. Truth has been, truth has been attacked. It's not been toppled. It still stands, but it's been wounded. But again, there's nothing new under the sun. This has been going on for centuries, just different issues. And so on occasion, throughout history, the Lord has brought about warnings, judgments even, to call people out, to remind them there is just one God who is almighty and sovereign, one God who is worthy of worship. And he attempts to warn the unbelievers in a variety of ways. in an attempt to cause them to repent, to turn away from the love of self, from the worship of self, and instead love and worship God our Creator. Uh-oh, where'd the next slide go? It's not there. Verses 20 and 21. And now I need my glasses and don't have them. Let's make this group participation. You have a pair? <laughs> Hurtful. <laughs> Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues 
did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So as extreme as these periods of judgment have been in the past and will continue to be until Jesus returns, people refused to accept it. Even in Jesus' day, he, he was teaching this very truth. That this process has been around for, well, since the beginning. In Luke 10, there's the story of Jesus sending out 72 followers. You remember this story? He sent them out to teach about the kingdom of God, to begin the harvest. And he told them they would face hardship and persecution. He told them he was sending them out as lambs among the wolves. But, he said... I want you to heal the sick. Teach the good news. And if you, if you come up to a town that doesn't want to hear the message, they reject you, then just turn and leave. Leave them to me. And in this, in this text, Jesus pronounces woe on the cities that rejected them. So the 72 took off, and eventually they returned. Starting in 17, Luke 10, 17, it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Think about this verse in terms of what we're seeing in Revelation. I mean, the first thing Jesus says, he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's a real similar description to what we just read about the blazing star that fell to earth with the fifth trumpet. And then Jesus tells his followers, I've given you authority, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus specifically mentions serpents and scorpions. In the context of these things being in league with Satan. So I think, these are descriptions of, of demons and things that they would encounter while they're out. And we just read about the locusts in Trumpet 5 has stingers like scorpions. And the horses in Trumpet 6 have tails like serpents. This is a pretty easy connect-the-dot game. So if we use Scripture to help interpret Scripture, I think this helps us see that the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments are, are more about an increase in demonic activity and spiritual assault rather than physical warfare. I mean, that might be part of the plan of attack. There might be physical assault. One-third of the earth will die, but it's not limited to just what we think of as warfare. And in spite of the physical evidence, perhaps in spite of what may look like an overwhelming power of evil, in their day and in our day, Jesus assured them that he'd protected them. They had been sealed, so to speak. They actually had been given power over Satan. They were sent out to be overcomers. They were the conquerors. Now, they had to persevere, and they had to endure. They had to put up with the harassment they received from some of the cities, but ultimately, they would overcome evil. That's the same message that we were given in the letters to the churches at the beginning of this book. Persevere, endure, conquer. Not only will we be attacked for our faith, but we must endure at least parts of these judgments aimed at bringing the world to repentance. 
The first four judgments, the first four trumpets we looked at, those will affect all over the world. But believers, those who persevere, those who conquer, those who continue to walk in a worthy manner, they're spared from the last three effects of the last three trumpets. But I think this verse is also important here for a couple of reasons. It makes clear that God created us and he knows us. He knows us probably too well. So he gives us a little warning here. He says, so they come back excited. We had power over demons. And he says, okay, hold on now. Don't take too much pride in the conquering. Don't get all braggy about the power over the enemy. In the first place, that power didn't come from you. That's, that's from me. In the second place, authority over the enemy and the power to endure is simply a means to an end. Your joy, your exuberance, ought to be in the fact that your names are written in heaven. We go through persevering, enduring, and conquering just because that's what we're called to do. It gets us to the end game. Your endurance proves your commitment to God. Your perseverance proves your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus to atone for your sins. And then your eternity awaits. Now, I think we've, we've had a lot as a church body. We've had a lot to endure recently. And we ought to be grateful for how God has answered our many prayers. Rather than question why we're having to experience it at all. I mean, that's our default. We've all done that. Lord, I've been pretty good. Why am I have to deal with this? We ought to lean in those times of adversity and trust that God has us where he wants us. He doesn't ask us to like it. He asks us to endure it. Trust him more. So we need to focus on persevering the tests, the trials, the temptations, the way he's called us to persevere. And we ought to look forward enthusiastically for what he has prepared for us. That's when the explosion of blessing shows up. When we, when we wake up in his presence. It's likely not going to be Tuesday this week. Let's pray. Oh, Father, again, we're grateful for the depth, the richness of your word. Um, and, and personally, I just find it so comforting to be able to look at the book of Revelation, for example, and see these same themes and ideas and occurrences in uh, Ezekiel and in Daniel and in Isaiah and Psalms and Proverbs and Job and, and even in Luke. Lord, you are consistent. You are faithful. Your word is true. It doesn't matter the, the age, the, the period, the, the people involved. You are the one constant of truth. And we thank you that we can rely on that. We thank you for the love that you have shown for your creation. And Lord, I, I I pray that we continue to live up to the calling that you placed on us. I pray that you continue to give us a heart for the unbelievers that we know, uh, friends, family members, co-workers, whatever it may be. These are hard things that are coming. These are hard times that we're going to have to endure, that unbelievers especially will have to endure. So, Lord, I pray that you give us courage to, to speak of our faith, to share our faith, to share your love with people who so desperately need it. And help us, equip us, encourage us, to continue to persevere and endure and conquer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.